Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Greetings and welcome to the Industrial Alliance fourth quarter earnings results conference call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the one followed by the four on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star zero. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded on Thursday, February 17, 2022. I would now like to turn the conference over to Marie-Annick Bonneau, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good afternoon and welcome to our fourth quarter conference call. All our Q4 documents, including press release, slides for this conference call, MD&A, and supplementary information package are posted in the Investor Relations section of our website at ia.ca. This conference call is open to the financial community, the media, and the public. I remind you that the question period is reserved for financial analysts. A recording of this call will be available for one week starting this evening. The archive webcast will be available for 90 days, and a transcript will be available on our website in the next week. I draw your attention to the information on forward-looking statements on slide 2, and on non-IFRS and additional financial measures on slide three. Also, please note that a detailed discussion of the company's risk is provided in our 2021 MD&A available on CDAR and on our website. I will now turn the call over to Denis Ricard, President and CEO. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the call today. As usual, I will start by introducing everyone attending the call on behalf of IE. First, Jacques Potvin, Chief Actuary and CFO. Mike Stickney, Chief Growth Officer and responsible, among other things, for our U.S. operations. Alain Bergeron, Chief Investment Officer. René Laflamme, in charge of individual insurance and savings. Sean O'Brien, responsible for our mutual fund business and wealth management distribution affiliates. François Blé, in charge of dealer services, special markets, and IOTO in home. And finally, Eric Jobin, responsible for our group businesses. IE Financial Group reported solid fourth quarter results as demonstrated by the six key performance indicators shown on slide seven. Start, starting with profitability, core EPS of $2.01 for the quarter was within guidance, which led to a record annual core EPS of $8.31. 11 cents above the top end of our 2021 guidance range. Core ROE of 14.2% is also above the guidance range. This metric is on a training 12-month basis and demonstrates the strength of our results for 2021. The following two metrics illustrate our strong growth momentum, which continued in Q4. First, premiums and deposits totaled a solid $4.2 billion up 6% above a very strong quarter last year. As for AUA 
AUM of more than 221 billion. This represents a significant increase of 12% over the last 12 months. Our capital position continues to be very robust with a solvency ratio of 134%, up by three percentage points, in addition to which are our distinctive macroeconomic protection now equivalent to 12 percentage points. Finally, book value growth is a telling indicator of the real value created for our shareholders, and we are therefore very pleased that it has grown by 12% in 2021. Now, turning to slide eight, 2021 has been the most profitable year in IE Financial Group history. In addition to profits exceeding expectation and a solid capital position, sales momentum was quite strong throughout the year, and I want to highlight in particular the strength of our individual insurance sales. As an illustration, the most recent industry data shows that in 2021, about one in four individual insurance policies sold in Canada was issued by IE. Also, noteworthy are the net fund entries of nearly $4.5 billion in retail wealth management and sales in our dealer services division that remain above expectations regardless of low vehicle inventories. Our strong 2021 results have enabled us to create value for our shareholders as demonstrated by the growth in both value and the substantial increase in the quarterly dividend per, per share of 29% as announced last November. Moreover, we reinitiated the NCIB program during the fourth quarter, under which we have already begun to buy back shares. An important success factor in 2021 was the superior client experience provided by our employees and advisors, and I want to take the time today to thank them and to emphasize how much I value their engagement. Our employees are key to our success, as are our distributors and advisors. Indeed, at IE, client experience is based on a three-way relationship between the client, the advisor, and IE through its employees. Therefore, by taking good care of our employees, we're also taking care of our clients and advisors. This is one of the many reasons why we are committed to offering a great employee experience through good working conditions, flexibility, support, and a rewarding career. With this approach, it is no coincidence that in 2021, at the same time as we ranked number one for the overall company rating in the Advisor Perception Survey, the satisfaction of our clients, as measured by internal surveys, was well above expectation. This is a solid foundation for continued growth in 2022 and beyond. Driven by this momentum, we are very pleased to increase this year our core ROE target range to 13% to 15%. This enhanced guidance comes one year earlier than the roadmap presented at our March 2021 investor event. Also, we're targeting strong organic capital generation again in 2022 with the upper end of the range at $525 million. And as we continue to be focused on the execution of our strategy, we are well reserved with additional macro and pandemic protections totaling nearly a billion dollars. Regarding IFRS 17 now, our favorite topic, 
As the transition to the new accounting regime is just around the corner, we want the market to know that we are already managing our business with the new regime in mind and that we will be transparent and proactive in our communications on this topic throughout the year. In this context, based on the currently available information, we are pleased today to share a positive outlook and therefore express our confidence as we continue to prepare for the transition. Based on the strength of our balance sheet, the flexibility of our investment portfolio, and our overall financial solidity, we expect near neutral to favorable impacts on several key metrics. These include the book value, a meaningful indicator of a company's value. In conclusion, this morning we released our first sustainable bond framework. This is a step forward in our sustainability agenda and our ambition to make a positive difference both envirom environmentally and socially. This ends my remarks. I will turn it over to Mike, who will comment further on business growth. And following Mike, Jacques will provide more information about the future outlook and Q4 results. Mike? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Denis, and good afternoon, everyone. Business growth during Q4 was no exception to the very strong performance recorded throughout 2021. Long-term value creation depends on the ability to generate new business, and we are pleased to see that our focus on growth in recent years is paying off. Now, please refer to slide 10, as I will comment on Q4 sales results by line of business. In individual insurance, the strong momentum continued with total sales of $87 million during the fourth quarter, a significant increase of 21% year over year. As Denny mentioned, one out of four individual policies in Canada were sold by IA in 2021. This further demonstrates our leading position in the mass slash mid-market. Growth was supported by the strength of our distribution networks, our superior digital tools, and our comprehensive range of products. On the last point, we continue to expand our product shelf as we launch the new IA Parwell product during Q4. Now looking at group insurance, employee plan sales for the quarter amounted to 15 million compared to $30 million for the same period last year. Sales for the full year were about the same level as in 2020. In Dealer Services Canada, sales of $266 million increased by 7% from a year earlier a good performance in the context of vehicle inventory shortages. In the special markets division, the addition of new blocks of business and the pickup in travel insurance sales led to a significant year-over-year -year increase of 69% from the same period a year earlier. In the U.S. now, individual sales of $33 million were up 6% year-over-year, mainly from growth in the family and government worksite markets. In the dealer service division of our U.S. operation, sales for the fourth quarter were 4% higher than a year earlier, which is good performance considering the vehicle inventory challenges that the industry is facing. Sales for the full year in 2021 were up 49%. These good results were mainly attributable to the synergies between DAC and IAS. Note that the, uh, the low vehicle inventory situation persists and that sales growth may continue to be slower in early 2022 for both the Canadian and U.S. Dealer Services divisions. Now, turning to slide 11 for individual wealth management, 
Guaranteed product sales for the quarter amounted to $228 million and ended 2021 with a total of $891 million of sales. 2021 was also a record year for IA in both segregated funds and mutual funds. Combined net inflows amounted to nearly $4.5 billion in 2021. Looking at segregated funds, the company ranked first in 2021 in net sales, solidifying its strong leading position in the industry. During the quarter, gross segregated fund sales exceeded $1.2 billion, up 41% year over year, while net sales totaled $823 million for the quarter, a strong increase of $276 million over the same period last year. As with individual insurance sales, distribution networks and digital tools have been key to our success. As for mutual funds, gross sales totaled $715 million. Net sales recorded for the quarter were solid with inflows of $242 million, showing continued momentum and bringing net sales to a record level of $1.2 billion for the year. This is thanks to the strong performance of the fund lineup, which we continually enhance to better meet the needs of our investors. On this note in January, I acquired and launched three new portfolio solutions, including additional socially responsible investment portfolios. In group savings and retirement, good sales of $620 million compared with a very strong quarter of $879 million last year. As you know, Sales in this sector tend to vary considerably from one quarter to another depending on the size of the contract sold. Finally, direct written premiums in our PNC affiliate IA Auto and Home continue their steady growth and increase 6% year over year. Overall, premiums and deposits, a key indicator of our success in growing the business, total nearly $4.2 billion during the fourth quarter and concluded the year with a very strong annual growth of 18% over the excellent year of 2020. Most sectors contributed to this solid result, especially individual wealth management. In addition, net fund entries and growth of the financial markets led assets under management administration to a record level and resulted in a 12% increase over the last 12 months. Please now turn to slide 12 to summarize the growth story for the quarter. Q4 sales were solid and concluded a year of very strong growth, marked by records in several sectors and surpassing the already excellent results of 2020. Individual insurance and wealth management stood out by adding another strong performance in the recent string of successes. Also, both dealer services divisions in Canada and the U.S. showed resiliency and performed well in the context of vehicle inventory shortages, allowing for continued growth in this capital light business. I will now turn it over to Jacques to comment on Q4 earnings and capital strength and the outlook for 2022 and 2023. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage – 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon, everyone. Strong profitability was achieved again in the fourth quarter, concluding 2021 on a positive note. Starting with slide 14, which compares our results with the guidance that was provided at the beginning of 2021. Our results were generally in line with or better than the guidance. Noteworthy are the core EPS and core OE, which both exceed their target range for the year. I also want to underline our very strong organic capital generation throughout the year, well above the guidance with a total close to half a billion dollars in 2021. Slide 15 compares core earnings to reported earnings. Items adjusted for Q4 reported earnings include favorable market-related impacts, the small favorable outcome from the year-end actuarial assumption review, and the small net gain related to acquisitions and disposition, which essentially results from the disposal of PPI benefits. Slide 16 presents the source of earnings for the fourth quarter on a core basis. Expected profit was 50% higher than a year ago. Policyholder experience was also favorable with the main exception of expenses, which were higher than expected, primarily due to higher variable compensation as a result of our strong performance in 2021. Strain on new business was within our target range, only slightly higher than expected. Income on capital was higher than expected with a positive contribution from Haye Otoeno. Finally, the tax charge was higher than expected, mainly due to tax adjustment related to prior years. More details on these items are provided on slides 31 to 34 in the appendices. As a result, core EPS for the quarter was $2.01, a very good result near the middle of the target range. However, this result is different from the guidance I gave you on, the, on our last call because of unexpected higher expenses and taxes. I now want to comment on our year-end assumption review, starting with an update on the additional protections put in place for the pandemic uncertainty. Please refer to slide 17. The additional protection for mortality was at the right level for 2021, as reflected in the slightly lower than expected additional mortality. For 2022, we have decided to strengthen this additional protection for our U.S. business by 13 million. As for the additional protection for policyholder behavior, it has been reduced at year end, taking into account that management took action to reduce the risk. 
As shown on slide 18, the overall impact of the 2021 actuarial, actuarial review on earnings was a small net positive. The results of the year-end review based on our internal risk studies and the latest experience recorded is a good indication that our reserves are well positioned. Moving to slide 19, our solvency ratio increased again during the quarter to reach 134% at year end. The increase was supported by very strong organic capital generation management actions, and investment strategies. The solvency ratio, along with the different metrics presented on slide 20, are indicative of our robust financial position. In particular, our distinctive macroeconomic protections are worth the equivalent of 12 percentage points that add to our solvency ratio. Also, the macroeconomic sensitivities of our solvency ratio have been updated and they remain low. For more information about capital sensitivities, I refer you to slide 43 in the appendix of the slide deck. Finally, we reinstated our, uh, an NCIB program in December under which up to 5% of our outstanding common shares can be redeemed until December 2022. I now refer you to slide 21 as I will comment briefly on the investment strategies that contribute to the increase in our solvency ratio in Q4. Taking a step back, you will remember that during our March 2021 investor event, my colleague Alain Bergeron explained that with the coming of IFRS 17, there are opportunities to realize the full potential of our scale and capabilities. As the transition to IFRS 17 approaches and the constraint of IFRS 4 are about to disappear, our investment portfolio adds flexibility to seize opportunities and we took actions to optimize it. In addition to their favorable impact on our solvency ratio in Q4, these changes improve the ROE of the investment portfolio without taking on more economic risk. Finally, these changes reduce the combined sensitivity of the IRR and URR, the most relevant metric available for assessing our interest rate sensitivity in preparation for IFRS 17. As we are already acting on the basis of the new accounting standards, we will present today some of our expectations for the upcoming transition to IFRS 17. Please refer to slide 22. Thanks to our long-term management approach, our sound risk management, and our well-positioned actuarial reserve, we are in a great position for the transition. Based on currently available information, we expect impacts ranging from near neutral to favorable for all the key measures presented at the top of the slide. That is, core EPS, core EPS growth, core ROE, book value, solvency ratio, and the level of capital available for deployment. 
Under IFR 17, there will be increased emphasis on core earning measures, as they will exclude the macro volatility resulting from the new accounting regime, and will therefore be the best indicator of the company's ability to generate recurring and sustainable revenue. This outlook that we provide today is preliminary as the items displayed at the bottom of slide 22 are not finalized or remain uncertain. In view of the transition to IFRS 17, we want to proactively communicate educational information to the markets on a regular basis. With this in mind, moving to slide 23, I will take a few minutes of your time today to discuss briefly about the contractual service margin or the CSM. CSM represents all costs and risks included in the pricing of insurance products that are not captured in the IFRS 17 current estimate or risk adjustment. This notably includes expense that are not directly attributable to contracts under IFRS 17 and the risk of asset liability mismatch. Both of these items are reflected in IFRS 4 liabilities today. An unearned profit or free profit, which is similar to the current concept of value of new business, is the remaining component of the CSM. It is also important to understand that risk adjustment should be considered along with the CSM to better predict future IFRS 17 insurance profit. When future assumptions will realize as expected, risk adjustment and CSM will both flow to the PNL. It should also be noted that the establishment of the CSM and transition may or may not impact a company's equity. For more information, I invite you to look at slide 27 and 28 in the appendices, which provide details on the link between CSM, reported earnings, core earnings, and capital generation. To conclude, I will share our targets for 2022 as presented on slide 24. Building on 2021's strong performance, we are significantly increasing our core EPS target range with the midpoint being 14% higher than in 2021. Our core OE target is also increased to 13 to 15%. As for the impact of new business, we are pleased to target a strain very close to zero particularly as we prepare to transition to IFRS 17. Organic capital generation will remain strong with a target range of 450 million to 525 million. Finally, as disclosed at the end of 2021, our dividend payout ratio target of 25 to 30% is now based on core earnings. This completes my remarks. Operator, we will now take questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to register a question, please press the 1-4 on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the 1 followed by the 3. One moment, please, for the first question. Our first question comes from 
Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please proceed. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Just a question on the IFRS uh, disclosure, Jacques. I mean, you don't expect any negative impact on the book value. I mean, Industrial Alliance has $1 billion of, uh, of macro protection embedded in your reserves. I think, Benny, that's what you, you mentioned. And I assume the two are related in that. Is the assumption here that you are going to release those excess provisions at the transition uh, and essentially move that out of the liability into the CSM as part of the setup of the CSM? Is that Do I have that me mechanics right? That's where I'm getting a little confused because I would have anticipated there to be some form of, of equity impact. Thank you. Thank you, Doug, for the question. Uh, we, we can say that uh, IFRS 17 is a really different construct from uh, IFRS 4, so I really like to look at it from the slide 23 perspective. When you have the current liabilities, you have the risk adjustment, and those two uh, are really uh, looking at best estimate, uh, I would say, uh, commitment you have towards your clients, as well as, I would say, the equivalent of PFAD or protection or margin for actuarial assumptions. So the CSM is really covering, uh, I would say, uh, ALM risk, uh, unattributable expenses, and what we consider free profit. For IE, of course, under the current accounting regime, we have those extra protections. We're very proud of them. They've been very useful to eliminate volatility. They have absorbed volatility over the past few years, and this will certainly flow through into the CSM because we cannot front-end all the profit we have in our product. And when I, th when I think of that, I mean, the biggest part of the excess provisions um, right now, I believe, is the equities that are backing your long-duration liabilities. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. And so to the extent that those excess provisions are released, uh, because as you mentioned, they did temper volatility in the past, you know, that would tell me is that one of the um, consequences of releasing these extra provisions is that there's going to be a little bit more volatility in your results. And then I would imagine you're going to back that out when you calculate the core Number and I'm so I'm so I'm just wondering if do I have that right? Is that should we expect some more volatility because of the release of these excess provisions? And then how are you going to back that out, or how do you think of defining core? Yeah, that's a really good point, Doug. Actually, that's one of the limitations we find of the IFRS 17 regime. It use what I use in the investor day. Uh, I will use the same expression. It use a very short-term lenses for all businesses, whether the businesses is long-term, mid-term, or short-term. And here, that's a, that's a good example you're providing. On, in, in fact, we will continue to manage business with long-term. So your totally right reported earnings will be more volatile because in the past, that stock market protection was absorbing that volatility. Now it will be in reported earnings, and that's why it's so important, the definition of core earnings, to remove that short-term volatility because those uh, NFI, we own them for the long-term liabilities. So it's a buy-and-hold kind of strategies. So you're totally right. Okay, so I think I get that. And then just the second question, you changed the investment portfolio in advance of the shift to IFRS 17, but you didn't talk about what changes were actually 
made. And it did cause a little bit of wonky impact on your IRR sensitivity, at least for 2022. So can you talk a bit about what the changes were and how, how will that create some additional volatility as we, and I know 2022 is going to be under IFRS 4, but we still have to think of that before we go to IFRS 17. Should we expect some additional volatility from those changes as well? That's a good question. Again, uh, Doug, actually, what we've din- done with our asset, we lengthened the duration of our asset portfolio. We also added some credit. When you look at 2022, uh, we have uh, market protection. If you go at the bottom of the slide, we have 900 million of protection to absorb the volatility in 2022. That's why we, feel, we felt pretty comfortable uh, doing those transactions and uh, we're very pleased with the risk profile. When we look at IFRS 17, I will answer it that way. We always, uh, we have always, and we will continue always to optimize, I would say, uh, our economic view of our business because it is an accounting regime change. It's not the underlying business that is changing. However, when you do that, optimization, you need to take into account the constraints that the accounting regime and the regulatory capital regime are putting on yourself. And with those transactions, we are with the choices we're making with IFRS 17, because that's a standard, principle-based standard on which we can make choices. We, took, we are making choices to bring the accounting as close as possible, closer actually to the economic view. So it will help. Those transactions will, will help us in regard of the diversification of risk for under IFRS 17. Okay, I, I will leave it there. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed. Yeah, thanks very much. Good afternoon. Um, kind of want to look at this, this uh, slide 27 where you talk about the movement in the, uh, in the CSM. Um, you know, it looks like, you know, you, you certainly make the point it's great to see the CSM growing and you want to see the CSM growing. Um, yet, the, 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 if I look at that kind of waterfall chart, the things that are actually you're showing is making it growing in the biggest box is new business. And if I look at, you know, your, your strain has actually been, that would have been a negative, and then you're forecasting it just to be zero. So I'm wondering how you get a big plus here for new business and on that waterfall chart. And then you talk about an uptick from changes in assumptions. I mean, it was two cents in total for the uh, year for changes in actuarial assumptions. And, and under IFRS 17, the investment assumptions review wouldn't be in that. So it would actually be negative under that. So traditionally, you've been negative to zero at best in those two things that are making this waterfall chart go up. Uh, uh, so I'm wondering how you're going to – are you doing something different when we move into IFRS 17 to make these uh, make this new business nicely positive uh, in particular? Um, how should we be thinking about that? Thank you, Tom. I, I just can say that I don't know if you were in and out close to your mic, but uh, it was cutting a lot. But I will try to answer, and if ever I don't get your question right, never hesitate to ask it again, please. So uh, 
No, uh, absolutely not. Actually, the business we're selling to do is very profitable, and it will show uh, when we will add new business uh, year in and year out, there will be CSM there. Like I said in my uh, opening remarks, CSM, there's three components to it, so it's not only free profit. There's free profit is certainly a big part of it, but uh, there's some margin there that we are pleased to have to cover unattributable expenses as well as the ALM risk. So, uh, and compared to uh, what we have, and the business change, I, I would say it will flow there. Yeah, I, that, that's, that's simply what will happen. I, I see that as pretty much the same thing we have done, uh, we have done uh, in our way of managing with IFRS uh, 4, that uh, a management action were not part of the core earning. They were used to manage uh, to manage a business change when there were bad news coming our way. And here, it could be the same. We're very pleased with where our assumptions are based, but you never know how it will evolve in the future. So new business, it will really show the added value of new business, but that, that's where I see it. So tell me if I got your question well. Right, and if ever you ask another question, please try to be closer to your mic. Yeah, is this better here? My question really is, you haven't had any impact of new business being positive before, but now you're talking about it being positive under IFRS 17. So what's changing here? Uh, that, that's, okay. that's really the thing I'm looking for. Uh, okay, perfect. The, the sound was much better. Thank you very much for that, Tom. Actually, it's because we've been conservative with our view on new business. Uh, we knew IFRS 17 was coming for us. It was appropriate to limit the profit at sale. Uh, so we used very conservative assumption, and that's why we have never disclosed, we have never shown a positive, uh, I would say negative strain. So this is the, the only reason. Uh, under IFRS 4, it's not because business are having a strain that business is not profitable, not at all. So what you're seeing here is really under IFRS 17 that the CSM become out of the sudden completely visible and you see it. Okay, is that sort of because you're not going to be ascribing this uh, ALMP fad to the business anymore? So that's why you're going to get a positive impact from new business under IFRS 17? Uh, Tom, I would just say that our product in Canada, they are very profitable. In the U.S., they are very profitable. We are pleased with that. So strain under the current regime, even if it's not negative, it doesn't mean our profit is not there. It's only that we book higher reserve and that profit will flow into the future. Here, when you see that slide, the new business, and you see the CSM, it comprised the three components on slide 23. And, and I can tell you that the free profit is the biggest part of that. Okay. Um, and then um, with respect to uh, um, currently you have these excess reserves and they don't count as capital um, from, uh, in, uh, in your solvency capital ratio. And then it, it, are the, as you move those excess reserves now into CSM, are we? Uh, um, do they they don't count as uh, um, available capital as well in the uh, under IFRS 17 for the for your cap for your capital formula. Is that correct? Uh, 
No, actually, actually, that's why we're we're showing that our capital ratio will increase. Okay, those uh, reserves that are not uh, the stock market protection is not uh, taken into account. That's what we are disclosing. We've been disclosing since Q3, I believe, 2019. This will now be part of CSM and uh, other uh, reserves. So it will now be part of the solvency ratio. So as your solvent, you mentioned your solvency ratio not changing as you go to um, IFRS 17. Um, the, the fact that you are talking about adding the CSM to your equity, wouldn't that imply that your, your solvency ratio would go up under IFRS 17? That's what we expect. That's what we expect. But at the same time, uh, the fact that related to Doug's question earlier, volatility of reported earning and volatility of the capital ratio will be higher. Our target operating ratio will also increase. Okay, this is uh, something that we have to factor in. But what we expect with the information we have now is really that the deployable capital will increase as well. So net-net, we should be positive. Okay, and my last question is, uh, it seems like you kind of had uh, almost like excess reserves that aren't really excess reserves and you move into IFRS 17, so you put them into the CSM. Why didn't you just release them as equity? At the end of the day, we can release them as equity, but like I said in my uh, earlier, we those extra reserves have been very useful to absorb volatility, short-term volatility, and allow management to really concentrate on managing the business with a long-term view. So it has been very useful. I can release them now if I want, but I will have to book them again at the CSM when we will do the transition. So, so you, you, you have to put them in the CSM. Is that what you're saying? Under IFRS exactly. 17? Don't you have the choice to release them to equity under, under IFRS 17? I, I, at the end, at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Tom, I would say that those reserve, those reserves are part of future profit. It's not a one-on-one. -on -one. Here, here we're speaking broadly. We're speaking about near neutral. We're still in unknown because the capital formula is not formalized. So so far, we have made some choices, but we will revisit those choices if ever there's a surprise there. But ballpark. I would say that that CSM will flow to uh, that, not the CSM, but that uh, stock that those extra reserves will flow through the CSM because they are part of future profit of the product. Okay, thanks very much. Then you're welcome. Our next question comes from Gabriel Deschen with National Bank Financial. Please proceed. Hi. Good afternoon. I, I want to state away from getting too technical here, but I just want to paraphrase or clarify something you're saying. And, and uh, you, as a you know strategic decision over the past few years, you've been selling more and more products that are short duration capital light. In theory, you guys could have, uh, or you, your company, I should say, um, could have been recognizing new business gains, but you didn't. Uh, so that you would be better, you know, avoid downside risk, I guess, uh, from IFRS 17? Is that sort of the thing? 
It's a fair statement, Gabriel. Okay, and then uh, just the uh, the rate sensitivity thing, uh, the, the the IRR sensitivity that went from like virtually nothing uh, to 25 million downside when rates go up 10 basis points. Uh, can you just explain that to me? What changed? I, I guess there was a change in the portfolio. Why? You know, why did that have an impact? If we can try to keep it at a high level, and um, and is that sensitivity going to be a bigger number under IFRS 17? Okay, the, uh, this is the same answer I provided earlier, uh, Gabriel. We lengthened the duration of our set portfolio and we added some credit. Right. And it 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 uh, it has a very nice uh, and great impact on the solvency ratio, but it increased the IRR sensitivity risk. But under IFRS 17, what will be very important for us is the whole liabilities, which is better measured by looking at the combination of high RR and URR. And this is really the metric on which we're reducing our risk. So that's why I'm saying that moving to IFRS 17, we are bringing uh, the accounting slash uh, capital uh, regime closer to the economic. So that's really uh, what's in it here. Yeah, uh, it's Denis here. I'd like to add something on this. The, the way I look at it at very high level is that, you know, this accounting change that is IFRS 17, at the end of the day, the question we could ask ourselves, what are the conditions under which, you know, when you look at the long term, I mean, going forward, under what conditions can we have, let's say, at IE, a continuity in terms of the main key indicators like book value, like core EPS, core ROE, and basically, when you combine the changes that uh, basically we did on the investment side, that leads us to a more, let's say, link, better link between the economic uh, you know, environment versus the, uh, the, uh, the balance sheet and the choices we need to make on the investment side. At the end of the day, it's a win-win for us. Now, the, the consequence is that we have a situation where we, have, we are hedging our, let's say, interest rate, long-term interest rate going forward. So by, by doing that, lengthening the duration of assets, increasing credit, um, we are in a, in a great position where we can see that the IFRS um, transition will be either you know, slightly positive or even neutral for us. That's basically at high level the way I look at it. Okay. And I kind of want to move away from this topic. So just want to talk about group, uh, the loss there. Uh, the, the morbidity that what was I'm, I'm I'm you know looking across the sector here we're seeing some you know parallels maybe duration of claim lasting longer and maybe that that's it or maybe something else if you can let me know what that is the driver of the negative morbidity that is and then how long do you think these issues are going to persist? Okay, thank you, Gabriel. I think I'm going to leave it to Eric to answer that. I don't know, Eric, if it's your, the first time you have a question, but uh, go ahead. Yes, it's my uh, I'm, I'm ice breaking here. <laughs> hey, there you go. Thank you, Denis. Um, so uh, to answer that question, I would say that it has not been visible last year, but uh, you know there are many parameters that uh, at play when we talk about disability. Just thinking about short term, long term, incidence rate. Uh, uh, duration of uh, disability, and finally termination. And last year, we had some fluctuation in those parameters during the year, but they tended to cancel out over the year, so it did not really impact our experience. 
And what happened in Q4 that we uh, we noticed is a, a slightly higher duration on short-term disability and a bit higher uh, incidence on uh, long-term disability. So they line up in the same direction. But uh, when I think about the future, um, and if we think about what happened in the last two years uh, with respect to those parameters, they have uh, sometimes gone up and then come down. And when I look at, uh, at uh, the, the numbers right now, there's no reason to believe that they will not come down and in line with our pricing parameters. So, okay, what's the, you know, uh, some analogy type stuff, not analogy, but just give me some real world uh, explanation here. Higher duration on STD, that's because hospitals are tied up, so getting care takes longer. And the incidence on LTD uh, moving higher, is that mental health or, or what? Yeah, it's a bit, uh, when you think about the COVID impact, you know, on the health side, people are trending to take a bit more time uh, to return to work. And uh, there is a bit of what I would call a spillover effect between STD that goes into LTD. And, uh, and uh, in the past, they tended to settle and return to work earlier. So that's really what's happening there. So uh, they, we will, uh, they will just return sooner than normal on the LTD side. So you expect this stuff to settle out in the near term? Yes. That doesn't mean, though, that we won't have uh, volatility, but yes, I'm expecting that to settle out. Thank you. Our next question comes from Darko Mahalik with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. Thank you. Uh, my first question is for Mike, and it has to do with the uh, car sales in the U.S. And I just wanted to see if you had any view on this, but I'd read an article that suggested that uh, many dealers in the U.S. are are with this inventory shortage trying to make more money on cars that they're selling. And one of the ways that they're doing it is they're sort of forcing the car to be sold with a warranty attached. Um, I guess they don't really want to try and charge more than the MSRP because the dealers don't like it. So what they're doing instead is they're sort of uh, saying to a customer, hey, if you want to buy this car, um, you more or less kind of have to buy it with a warranty or they're including the warranty in the price and they're sort of getting the car sold that way. So my question is, uh, are you aware of this? Have you seen it? Is this a risk to your business? Um, yeah, thanks for the question, Darko. Um, I'm sure there are dealers out there who, you know, uh, do that sort of thing. It's, it's definitely not recommended to, you know, basically force people to take the warranty. Um, so I don't think it's that common. And we we really haven't run into it, you know, in our in our business and our you know I guess with our dealer clients uh, to any extent, you know, because that would obviously you could run a risk of consumer complaints and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I would say it's it's a minor percentage of what's going on out there. Um, just in general, you know, it's it's. Um, uh, you know, it's a tough market in terms of the inventory shortages, and and it, I've you know certainly heard and read reports about dealers charging more than MSRP, which you know the OEMs don't like. Um, but they're they're doing they're, where they're really making their money right now is selling used cars. The price of used cars has really 
skyrocketed, and there's there's good margins there for them as well. And 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 just so so to make it clear, um, how is it that you would know if uh, if a car warranty was being bundled into the price? Uh, it'd be hard for us to know. You're right. Okay. Um, you know, the one way we, you know, it comes to mind that you, you get some level of consumer complaint, that sort of thing. And I certainly haven't heard any from our business. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, I, I, I have a few, uh, IFRS, uh, 17 questions as well. Um, and maybe first just going back to, um, the, I guess the, the best way to ask this, uh, uh, Jacques, is is one of the things that you highlight um, that is not yet sort of finalized is the tax treatment of the CSM. So the first question, I guess, is um, have you looked at that through a lens of what's the worst case scenario? And if you have, uh, what would be would it be material to you if the tax treatment goes against what you're hoping for? That's a pretty good question, uh, Darko. Um, maybe uh, I should say that uh, my view on that first, and after that I will answer the question. I think uh, I was a very young actuary in the early 90s when uh, I recall my first year in that we had to calculate uh, tax reserve as well as uh, gap reserve, and it changed, I believe, in 1992 or 1993. I really believe that uh, tax regime should be worked according to the accounting regime. It's very bizarre uh, to recognize profit on the tax side without recognizing on the accounting basis. So that's really my view on that. Uh, to answer your question, uh, I would say that no, I didn't use a worst case in the metric we said there. The one that is at risk uh, is more the, the PNL, the EPS that uh, will be a risk. Uh, book value is, will, won't be affected by that because there will be a, um, an asset, a deferred tax asset that will be set on the balance sheet for that. But we expect, if ever the worst happens, that there will be transition at least. So uh, that's what we expect. But like I explained on slide 23, it's not all free profit. Okay, so it has. I, hope, I really hope that Finance uh, Canada is getting that. Okay, okay, thanks for that. And my second question on IFRS 17 is, given what I'm reading and the way you're sort of describing this, it sounds like you're not willing or you're not going to take very much of the OCI option, and I'm just wondering why that would be. Okay, we, uh, you're, you're reading it well. Uh, we look at it, we analyze the situation, and of course, I would say OCI, the, the advantage of OCI will be to move some volatility from the PNL to the OCI, but at the end of the day, uh, capital is king, and the capital formula will be the same under both uh, approach. And we think that even using OCI, uh, we will have had, uh, there will still remain some volatility into the PNL, so uh, it will have trigger as well uh, a core, core EPS uh, definition. So we will have required core as well. 
Also, what we think there is that it's much more complex to run uh, with the OCI. Uh, and one of the drawbacks of OCI for us is really, like I said earlier, the choices we, we made, uh, we're making there, is really to try to align as much as possible the accounting with the economic regime. It's much easier to manage a company with, with when the two are, are closer together than when they are far apart. So uh, if you use OCI and you focus on PNL only, you may take investment decisions that, that looks good on the PNL, but that may not be that good for the economic value of the enterprise. So that's really where we're moving. Okay. I think I might follow up with you on that for some technical. Um, I have a few technical questions on that. Um, in, in addition to that question, okay. Uh, in, in addition to that question, wh when I look at your slide 23, um, you know, and, and it's obvious, right? I mean, it, what, what obvious, what, what comes out obvious is that if there's very little, or let's say, very close to neutral impact on your on your shareholders' equity, you're just shifting around. I mean, the reserves are basically just being shifted around. But what what I'm struggling to to capture, or what I'm struggling to understand is is if the discount rate now being um, related to the nature of your liabilities and disconnected from your assets i would I would be under the impression that the discount rate might actually be lower than sort of and I know this is a a, a a strange concept but but if you bear with me, I would think that the the way you discount now would be at a lower rate. And therefore, your overall liabilities would have increased, and your equity would have dropped. Um, can you? Is, is it the opposite? Is it actually that the discount rate is close to where you're currently discounting? And maybe you can also weave into your answer how you are um, arriving at your discount rate. Is it a is it a reference portfolio or something like that? Might help me as well. Okay, we're using reference portfolio, and the way we summarize the answer there, because it's two different constructs, uh, the fact that we have had the stock market protection, I would say that we have not been aggressive using uh, our in the, the investment rate we're using today is not uh, maybe, uh, is conservative. I would say that way it's conservative because we wanted to have that extra caution to uh, absorb the volatility. Uh, so that's why rates are comparable. But when we construct our IFRS 17 assumption is really reference portfolio and the liquidity, illiquidity premium was built according to the characteristic of the liabilities. So that's really it. And if ever your interest rate, the, 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 the discount rate, you change it, you just change, you're just transferring money into the CSM because at the end of the day, you must not front end profit under the IFRS 17 regime. Okay. And just two more questions, and I promise I'll, I won't hog the puck anymore. Um, are you finished with the changes to your investment portfolio, or is it possible that you do more changes throughout the year? Actually, like I said earlier, uh, what we're providing today is with the information we know today. So the capital formula is not finalized yet. The, uh, the CSM taxation not finalized uh, yet. 
So at the end of the day, there could be uh, some changes that we will bring. Okay. And the reason why I ask is it's very curious that you can somehow lengthen the duration of the portfolio, but also add credit. Uh, typically, credit would be shorter. So how are you actually lengthening the portfolio duration while adding credit risk? Actually, we're doing both. It's not using the same uh, the same instrument, the same asset, I would say. Okay. Meaning no, maybe, shifting yeah. from maybe, maybe, Alain, maybe, Alain, you want to give some, some color on that? Yeah, uh, Darko, there are, there are multiple ways to increase the duration. One is to take uh, physical bonds uh, and, and change them, and that's one thing that uh, has been part of the toolbox. But another way is to add derivatives or to use derivatives to increase the duration. So if you okay, that's what then, then then you can achieve what we've achieved. Okay, so that's as I suspected. But at one way or another, you're still shifting. I mean, it's very hard to, to somehow figure out how you can extend the duration and the yield without having risk somewhere in the portfolio. So it seems to me like you may have added spread risk. Is that... It, it, was that is that the way I should think of it and swap and swap risk as well? Well, so you're right. That Sorry. Go go ahead, Alain. Yeah. So I mean, there's a, there's a few things to think about. Uh, so that's true that when you uh, when you add, for example, derivatives, then you can get exposure to you've mentioned swap spread. That would be an example, or liquidity. That could be another one. For example, depending how you structure the, the short end land, uh, leg. Uh, but I think if you take a step back, I think the, the important part is when you start to think of the, the IFRS 17 or 2023 plus, uh, by, by making the, the portfolio changes that, uh, that we've made, the one thing that, well, actually, both lending duration, it reduces the economic risk because it matters the total uh, or overall interest rate exposure. The other thing is it's with the credit. Uh, the credit in the in the new world or IFRS 17, adding to our credit actually reduce ALM risk. And so so that's an that's an important consideration in, in uh, why we've been uh, making these these two. Actually, adding the credit decreases that risk, but also uh, increases the portfolio income. I see. Okay, so so you're trying to. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, uh, Jacques, I'll have to ask you about the investment result at some other time. But um, is that a key component of your earnings stream as well going forward? Or do you, it sounds to me like you're really pushing us on the CSM and the risk adjustment as being the core measure to look at, and net investment result is something that's really pushed to the side. Or am I am I assuming the, or am I just assuming too much there? No, uh, everything will be uh, will will continue to be important. Well, the unfolding of the CSM and and the risk adjustment, uh, there will be insurance risk there. There is interest. Uh, there, there, there is interest factoring to those two calculations. So you need a good investment strategy to provide the investment return to 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 compensate for it. Is the same world we're living it today. It's just reported a little bit slightly differently. Okay. All right. I'll follow up with you after, Jacques. Thank you very much for the for tolerating my questions. You're welcome. But, cool. and, 
Just one thing I would close on this topic is that you're right that while making changes, you move risks uh, around a little bit, but it's our view that even the composition of the risks have changed, the total economic risk is about in, this, in the same ballpark. Okay. Our next question comes from Manny Grauman with Scotiabank. Please proceed. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, just uh, following up on the uh, items uh, you highlighted that, that are not finalized yet, what's your expectation in terms of timing, both for, for the tax treatment and the final capital formula? Do you have a good sense of when we should get clarity there? Uh, my understanding is uh, capital formula will be uh, probably late this spring. Uh, about uh, the taxation, I don't know exactly. And if you consider both those items, where do you view more risk being? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that one, Many. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we are ready. We are ready to call the shot when we will see what will be the the, the playing rules. So we'll see. Okay, fair enough. Um, I just wanted to ask another question on on expenses, Jack. Uh, you talked about how expenses surprised you in Q4, and just wondering, um, as you look at 2022. What are you expecting, and, and how do you gain confidence that you won't be surprised again? Obviously, inflation is uh, a big topic these days. So I'm just wondering how you're thinking about expenses in 2022, and especially relative to the surprise that you got in, in Q4. Thank you, many for that question. Actually, I was hoping for a question on expenses, because I will take a, a little bit more time just to... Uh, Explain. I said in my remarks that uh, uh, we guided uh, in Q3 uh, to the top of our guidance, the EPS at the top of the guidance, and for sure uh, we, we didn't achieve that, and expenses was part of that. So uh, what surprised us in Q4, actually, uh, bonus, bonuses uh, has been a part of that, and two reasons for that. The, our net promoter score, Denis spoke about uh, the survey we're conducting with our client, with our client satisfaction, so they were through the roof. So we are not expecting that, as well as the four, Q4 growth has been uh, better than what we were expecting. So uh, we had a 4 cent impact, uh, higher 4 uh, cent impact than expected when I guided you in November on that aspect. Uh, there's also uh, a file we have with Renew Quebec uh, with one of our uh, life insurance distributors, and on that one we decided to be prudent in December and took a provision for that, so it's two cents. Also, there, there we had a, a lower proportion of tax-deductible expenses uh, that cut, cost a three cents in Q4, and we have provision all year along with a certain with, with an assumption there, and uh, we discover in Q4 that uh, we didn't uh, provision enough. So uh, it added uh, those those three elements add add to nine cents, and the tax threw up. I was not expecting the tax threw up, so four cents there. All other gain and loss are pretty much in line. So overall, it's uh, 13 cents lower than what we're expecting. So this is to reconcile Q3 guidance to Q4. 
Q4 by, by itself, when I, I look at expenses, is really there's 24 cents. And from those 40, uh, 24 cents, there are actually at least 10 cents on bonuses uh, that really should be linked to the first three quarters because uh, it's really related to the overall yearly performance, strong performance on both the top line, bottom line, and the client satisfaction. Also, I spoke about, earlier about the, the tax, uh, about the non-deductible expenses. This part also is, uh, has to be spread over the, over the year. And uh, the tax uh, provision is really a one-time item. So actually, in Q4, when I look at it, there's probably 11 cents that we can say as being normal expenses for Q4. That's really the way I see, I see it. And on that 11 cents, there are expenses that are there because of compliance. I would say IFRS 17, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in all other companies. We are spending, we have an army of people that are putting IFRS 17 in place, and we need to be ready to run parallel tests and so on. So it's, it's really putting additional costs. Also, we have uh, made uh, adjustment to our seller uh, compensation to make sure that we continue to attract and retain the talent we need to execute and to transform. And also the, the, the main impact is really we have had tremendous growth everywhere, so we need people to support that growth, that business. So this is very important. So the bottom line, and I'm coming to you, Question, 2022 guidance is taking into account everything we know today, so what is recurring into, uh, on the expense side? Okay, that's, that's a lot of detail. Thank you so much. Our next question comes from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please proceed. Good afternoon. Before I get into my series of IFRS questions, let me just quickly run something by you on segregated funds. So the company is obviously dominating the market there. Um, it's been a long time since we cared about the risk that segregated funds pose to any life insurance company. Perhaps you could just take us through the nature of the guarantees on these segregated funds relative to where your peers are today. Like, are you offering anything that I would, that others might think is outsized risk? And then relative to what you did before the, the big financial crisis of 2008 and Okay, Mario, it's Denny here. It's, uh, I'm so glad you asked the question. I, I used to be the appointed actuary uh, in those years, so I'm very pleased to answer that question. And you were there at that time as well, so you may, it, it may remind you some, uh, some of the discussion we had. I mean, when you look at it at high level, at IE, the, the best, I would say, guarantee, or not the best guarantee, but the best protection against, let's say, macroeconomic uh, negative movement is in the design of the products. That's, that's basically where, where it starts, before even thinking about investment strategies. And at IE, when you look at the design of our products, it's been, it's been less risky than anything you found in the, in, the, um, in the industry. And I'll give you one example, or two examples. One is, let's say, our, our guarantee is by, uh, by, by contract, not by deposit, where you would find guarantees uh, across uh, the other uh, companies that were by, by deposit. Um, also, uh, you know, like the 10-year guarantee, we used to have um, you know, the guarantee that, that we sold were, let's say, for the, um, at age between 55 and 65. So the, the average duration of the guarantee was, was significantly higher than 10 years. 
So, and this allowed us, this combined with the fact that we had some of those 100% guarantee that we had on our portfolio, uh, put us in a very good position. In fact, so much so that when the regulator changed his formula and, uh, let's say, recognized the hedging strategies at the time, and I'm thinking maybe five years ago, I can't remember exactly how many years, um, we were able to release some uh, some capital at the time. It, but it, it's not that it would have been the same for the whole industry. Uh, it's because our design was less risky and also that we had a great, uh, let's say, hedging strategy. Hopefully that answers your question, Mario. Yeah, I think so. So you, you still add value to your customers, but you're careful in your design, so you don't have to necessarily overcharge them. And that's that combined with your distribution is what's driving these strong sales. I guess that's a fair way to put it. Well, nowadays the uh, the, the guarantees or, or most of the guarantees are sold at let's say at the lower level of guarantee. Uh, there are there are less and less hundred percent type of guarantee in our portfolio. But for the rest, you said it's a fair comment. Okay, so let, now let's go into IFRS for a moment. So I listened to all this, and, and I, I'm certainly coming to understand what you're telling us. So there's going to be a regular level of income, like investment income, um, and that regular level of in, investment income will be the, the interest income, the dividend income, but assets, all assets, virtually all assets, have a lot more value to, a, to an investor than just the regular income. They must also have gains, like realized and unrealized gains. But what I'm hearing is that to the extent that this creates volatility, that'll be removed from your core earnings. So help me think this through. Uh, when you think about your investment portfolio, what is the regular yield then? When you take the, the cash, let's say dividends and interest income, you got to add some amount for realized and unrealized gains. Um, probably this is best for Jacques. How do you decide how much to include there for realized and unrealized? In a way, you know, you're, I'm sure you're aware that Manulife includes $100 million of gains every quarter uh, on their alternative long-duration investments. There's, some, there's an analogy here then from, for Industrial Alliance. Industrial Alliance will also have a certain amount of return that you'll include every quarter. So how do you get there? Actually, we are, we are, uh, that, that's a very fair question, uh, Mario, here. And we have not gone through the math yet, but the principle you're explaining is exactly uh, that. Actually, we will have to look at what's our long-term view. I will use stock, okay, uh, the common stock as an example. What's our long-term view on uh, the dividend plus the market rate that should increase? And that's probably uh, this long-term view that we will put as being uh, recurring, expecting core earnings. And anything that will be above or below will be considered as being uh, non-core. So that's probably the mindset we will have here. Okay, so using long-term averages then for equity market returns and let's say long-term averages for real estate and everything else, I think that's all, that's entirely fair because it's objective, it's verifiable, I can kind of look at long-term returns and say, okay, that makes sense. Where the problem arises, and I'm just looking at the 2023, 2024. If, if I were running one of these companies and I knew that the analysts and investors would, would, would play ball with me and accept some kind of regular return, then I would just increase risk. I would extend duration. I would add credit risk, pretty much what you've done. I would do that to make sure that I maximize my core earnings 
on the assumption that everybody's going to play along with me and I'll exclude all the bad stuff. So what then is the governor? What is the thing that's going to stop a life insurance company from taking that? And I know this is a very cynical question, but what's going to stop a life insurance company from just going too far and adding so much credit risk and duration risk, knowing very well that the analysts will just ignore it anyway? What's the governor? There's two, I see two things here, uh, Mario. The first one is risk appetite and tolerances, okay? When we work those, we, there's two different views on that. We have an economic view and we have the accounting regulatory capital view. So you have, everyone has to be on board, all executives as well as the board. So this, this gives us in check in regard of the return you can provide because you have to factor in all the risk you're taking into those two. And like I said, regulatory capital as well will catch you at one point in time if you're too risky because the, capital, uh, the, the, the way the, that the capital solvency ratio is working, they are, they are, it is stress testing all liabilities, all assets. So at one point in time, you will have to, uh, to, to have the capital to support that risk. So. And, and the last thing I would add is that, um, you know, traditionally, IE has had, let's say, less corporate uh, credit than, than, than their peers. So, um, I mean, we we're still in a good situation here. Yeah. You know, I think, I think these are all great answers. And, and, and I, you know, to quote, um, I think it was Ronald Reagan said, you know, trust but verify. I think one of the things we're all going to have to do uh, is have all the life insurance companies be very, very transparent and how they come up with these expected or recurring returns. Uh, because as investors and analysts, if we can't get really comfortable with that, it can be awfully difficult to ignore all the bad stuff. Uh, one final thing then is, Mario, is on... Yeah. Mario, it's here. can I just add something? In, in, as you think about this and you challenge the industry and you challenge us, don't forget the... Uh, the impact that these decisions have also on the ALM risk, in the true economic yeah. ALM risk, which in a way links to what Jacques, uh, Jacques mentioned, which because the capital for, uh, formula also includes that. But, but that's, that's an important consideration, right? the risk and the return. Totally get you. But like an answer like we're good guys, trust us, that's not going to fly over the long term. I know where you're going with this, that you manage your ALM risk and capital, but we're going to really need to get comfortable with these recurring yields. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to be acceptable to just ignore all the bad stuff. One final thing then. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, one, one final thing, if I may then. Um, I can see how the, the LICAT will be adjusted to uh, X this out. I can see how core earnings will be adjusted to X this out. But, you know, some investors really care about book value and book value growth. And in fact, you, at the beginning of almost every one of your presentations, you're fond of saying, hey, we've grown our book value better than our peers. So what happens in a world where there's this massive volatility, we're all ignoring it from an earnings and capital perspective, but the book value is getting crushed every quarter? How do we deal with that volatility? Yeah, actually, we, are, we will have to live with it, but at the end of the day, that's exactly why we are working and we are paid to minimize the risk, to optimize the value of shareholder by minimizing the risk, having the best uh, diversification of risk uh, on the liability side as well as with our investment strategy, our ALM strategy. But down the road, as an insurance company, we're taking risk on all that, so it's diversification there that will be key. But 
there will be volatility there that we will have to live with. Thank you. I mean, suffice to say, this is going to be a really tough go in the first few quarters of 23, and but I appreciate you uh, giving us the information so at least we know what questions to ask. Thanks. Thank you, Mario. Our next question comes from Lamar Perso with Cormark Securities. Please proceed. Hi, thanks. Uh, just on IFRS 17, it sounds like some of the issues that uh, still need to be finalized are pretty material. So I'm just wondering, is there any risk that uh, implementation gets pushed out beyond 2023, or uh, does it feel like uh, we can get all the ducks in a line and, you know, by uh, January 1st? I hope not. <laughs> With all the work we've been putting there and all all insurance company that has put to be prepared for, for that date, let's hope that it won't be delayed again. Okay. Very simple answer there. Um, uh, there is no indication. There, there is no indication. Uh, sorry, standing here. There is no indication that there's going to be any delay. Uh, in fact, the industry would be very upset. If, if there was to be any delay, which is different than, let's say, three or five years ago where the industry wanted to have some delays. Now it's, it's time to implement that. It, it, it costed enough money. It's just accounting, right? I mean, it's just accounting at the end. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, my next question, could you just talk to the decline in the capital available for deployment uh, versus last quarter? I think last quarter you guys have in this quarter is 900. I'm just a little bit surprised to see a decline and a quarter where the company generated $150 million. Like, is that all related to, to Surex and, I guess, some of the buybacks? Or, so just help me bridge the gap there. Okay, uh, Jacques speaking. Uh, actually, the acquisition of Surex has, has used uh, $100 million, uh, there, so uh, that, that's part of it that, that went there. Also, we are, we are in a situation in which one of the constraints, which is tier uh, 2 capital, uh, you cannot recognize uh, more tier two capital than tier one capital, so we are a little bit limited on that. This situation will improve under IFRS 17, so this is the reason why it has not increased as much, even if our capital ratio has increased. Okay, thanks. We have a follow-up from Darko Mihailik with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. Mr. Mahalik, your line is open. Please proceed with your question. Apologies. I'm still uh, <laughs> still hitting that mute button a little too often. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, to, to come back to one last uh, question. Maybe you can help me understand something um, just from a technical perspective, Jacques, on the URR under IFRS 17. It's my understanding that it's frozen until October of 2023. Um, but it is a URR that's way out there, like year 70. And so my suspicion is that I think that the maximum move is 15 basis points either side. And my suspicion would be that if you're going to change it, they're going to change it by 15 basis points either side. So uh, first first is, you, you, can I just take your 10 basis thing, uh, 10 basis point uh, sensitivity and uh, consider it linear? And secondly, um, is there is there still a chance that the that the UR can be changed before implementation? Uh, because my understanding is people really want to change it, but maybe you can just give me some ideas there on the URR. 
the only thing I can say, Darko, at this point is that sensitivity of URR on the IFRS 17 would be different from what we're showing on the IFRS 4. And about the setting of URR, my understanding is that it is set like you said, and we will see where it will uh, it will go. And here we're really speaking not about the URL of IE, we're speaking about the CIE. I suppose you're speaking about the CIE uh, guideline here. Yes. So, uh, so, but uh, I don't know. I'm not close enough to that to see what will happen there. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Cheers. Mr. Ricardo, no further questions at this time. Please continue with your presentation or closing remarks. Yeah, I'm not sure if I should talk about IFRS 17 in my in my my ending remarks. It's been a great discussion today. Well, the one thing I would like you to keep in mind is that you know, in my career, it's it's the third time that we we changing accounting regime, and each each of these three times, I mean, uh, the company has adjusted, and uh, accounting is accounting. The true value is really through the. Uh, the, the pricing of our products, the um, you know the management of the company, management of the investment uh, strategy, and this is what we're doing. We've been doing that forever. So I think uh, the the, uh, the investor should should be reassured that uh, we can see today that you know going forward, even under IFRS 17, our main matrix are in good shape. So I think that's the message I would like you to uh, to understand today. That includes the fact that we've increased the uh, core ROE target uh, from, uh, I mean, to, to a range of 13 to 15%, which is a great achievement. So with that said, thanks a lot, guys. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day, everyone. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.